Listener Production. To let you know before you listen to Vanessa and my conversation, between us we do mention the names of First Nations people who are no longer living, so please proceed with caution. Vanessa Turnbull-Roberts is a proud Bundjalung Wittable Weeble woman who spent the second half of her childhood living away from her family and away from her country. From the age of 11, Vanessa lived with more than a dozen different foster families before she was old enough to return home again at age 18. Vanessa has now completed her law and social work degrees with first-class honours, mind you, and is embarking on a PhD. She is determined to tell the stories of First Nations children in the foster care system, children who are growing up away from their culture, their families and their land. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, Helen Smith joins me for The Weekend List, where we recommend what to watch, see, eat, do and listen to. But first, here is my conversation with Vanessa Turnbull-Roberts. In an important year for First Nations Australians and indeed the whole country, a year of referendum. Hey, Vanessa Turnbull-Roberts, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Thank you so much for having me. Really lucky to be asked to come on this and and share some, some briefs of the week and the world. Uh, It is uh, very much our pleasure and privilege to have you. I wanted to start by telling you just a little bit about me, which is unusual. I was in my uh, very early 20s in 2008 when I was working in Parliament House and I was working in Prime Minister Kevin Rudd's office. And I remember the day of the National Apology so clearly. I was actually standing outside Parliament House um, that day where so many uh, people had gathered on the lawns, mostly First Nations people, to listen to what was happening inside the Parliament. There were these big screens and there was such a sense of gravity and significance of that day. We apologise, especially for the removal of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children from their families, their communities and their country for the pain, suffering and hurt of these stolen generations, their descendants and for their families left behind, we say sorry. I wanted you to tell me what happened to you in the, in the same year that Australia formally apologised to the stolen generations. You know, I think for, for those who may know a little bit of my story that's publicly out there um, and for those that may not know, at the age of 10 and a half, which is um, the same year that um, the then Prime Minister uh, Kevin Rudd um, apologised to uh, First Nations members and Stolen Generation members, a national apology that went out to to the nation, uh, particularly obviously to, to, to survivors of the Stolen Generation and, of course, those that didn't survive or didn't get to come home. The same year that he gave his national apology was the same year that I was forcibly removed from my family, my community, um, and subject to the family policing system. Um, and I think, you know, as, as we go on with these yarns, um, I like to call the Department of Communities and Justice exactly what it is, which is um, it's a family policing system um, that works for the state that forcibly removes children or oversees other organisations that remove uh, children and young people from their families and communities. And what we know is that there's a a significant rate 
um, of children that are forcibly removed um, every single year. Um, but there's a disproportionate rate of First Nations children that are removed. Um, and, and the primary root cause of this is, is the racism and the violence of, of this nation um, that runs deep in that state system. Um, and, I, and I talk about that because we need to truly understand the root and the violence of, of where this comes from. Um, and we need to have the ability to, to reflect and listen deeply. Um, and so when I think of the apology in 2008 and how that apology was, was, was to that root, was to the direct individuals and families and communities impacted, um, and now we know as the stolen generation survivors, we need to honour that in its token because, you know, I know many members of the stolen generation hold that apology really close to their heart and that needs to be honoured for, the, for their experience and their pain. But from my positionality and my experience, the stolen generation hasn't stopped and it happened to me and it was racially charged and it was reasons um, that could have been easily solved. However, the state impact of state system violence um, took a greater toll for my family and my community. Um, so that year in 2008 was a really big year for myself, my little body at the time. I was 10 and a half, as mentioned, um, but of course my family and my community. And, and I speak now as a survivor of that family policing system to really encourage the importance of what does it mean to actually not have the department coming into our families and communities and tearing up First Nations families, um, that is ongoing. You were 10 and a half. That's still very young and now a lot of us have, have memories of being young that are a bit fuzzy and, and patchy, but it, it is old enough to have great clarity, I think, still about, about what had happened to you and I imagine you do have memories of of the experience can you tell me what it felt like and what it meant to you as 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 a ten year old when you've got sort of a a base level of of understanding? And I know your community were disproportionately impacted by the law, so you weren't you didn't find police unfamiliar. But can you talk to me about what the the shock and the pain felt like for you as a kid when that happened? As I just mentioned, ten and a half on the little on the little body, the little body but a really big mind and a really big mind to understand exactly what's going on. And I think that's one of the biggest mm. mistakes that the system made with removing me from my family, my community, is that I remembered everything. And I remembered that night about to close my eyes, saying goodnight to my dad and my dad walking onto the balcony and seeing all of these red and blue flashing lights coming down our housing street, Bilga. And I remember my dad going out there, and I talk a little bit about this in my book that's coming out. I remember my dad having this feeling of something's about to go wrong, something's up right now. And when you speak to a lot of blackfellas and in particular speak to a lot of our community members, you will know intuition's a very powerful thing. Spirit's a very powerful thing. And the way our ancestors and our old people communicate with us, they let us know when something's coming. Our people knew something was coming when invasion was on the way. They, they felt it, you know, and that mm. spirit just speaks to you so powerfully and it overwhelms your intuition that you, you cannot look any other way but the way of something's about to happen. And my father knew that something was going on. And all of these police cars flying down, you would have honestly thought a, a, a murder had taken place in our community. And my dad yells on the balcony 
um, I'm so sorry, big girl, but they're coming to get you. And I remember thinking, who's coming to get me? Like, I had no idea who was coming to get me. Mm. And my dad walks in and he has this whole body of shutdown and shame. And he just feels completely defeated as a black man in this colony. Knock, knock. It's the police and it's the caseworker. We're here to take Vanessa. And I remember hearing those words and I remember still thinking, where am I being taken to and why am I being taken from my dad right now? And as a black man, you are not going to fight the police. That's what we're taught raising, being raised. We're taught no. you don't talk back, you don't fight, you just listen, obey because you will likely die or end up in custody. And so the caseworker walked in to our, our home, our family home, and said to me, hug your dad one last time, it's time for you to go. And I remember hugging my dad and I remember that feeling and I remember the shame he felt and I remember feeling his tears were so close falling down onto my little body and police officer saying, yeah, you're taking too long now, it's time to go. Um, and a police officer coming right behind me, putting my hands behind my back and escorting me down our housing flat stairs through our community all the way to the docks car. Um, my experience through those foster homes or those family policing facilities or homes, I should say, were one where I was not safe, I was not cared for or loved, and for me, all I wanted to do was go back home to my family and community. This is almost impossible to answer, but I'm going to ask you to imagine. Mm. Would you have been a different person at age 18 had you grown up with the people who loved you? And how do you think you would have been different? I would have had more time with my family. I would have had the joy, had, the, had my community around me during the most pivotal years of growing up. Instead of coming in and ripping me apart from my family, my community, what should have happened is support. What should have happened is how can we help this family for a better outcome instead of actually resulting in a worse outcome of tearing the time apart from this child and her family and her community? Would I have been a different person in terms of my political work in terms of how I stand as a proud Bunjilung Wijibal Waiwa woman, I would have had the joy with my dad, with my mum. I would have been able to see them. I would have been able to actually have a proper birthday and a proper birthday wish with my family. I would have been able to go to our country on Bunjilung Wijibal Waiwa with my father. We would have been able to work on healing. We would have been able to be together. And that's what was taken away. And that's what this system never understands, is it takes and rips families apart, thinking it has the best interest of children at play. But a system that is built and designed and rooted in racism, in violence, in tearing children from their families, is a system that is always going to fail. And it doesn't fail on the system. The person it fails on the most is that child because then that child is the one that has to go through all those different foster placements. That child is the one that has to hit 18 and decide what is my life right now because that family is not getting income. They don't want anything to do with you. You're not a business proposition for them. It's time for you to go. Or what does it mean 
when our children and young people want to come home, but we're denying cultural accessibility, when we're denying the fundamental pillars of self-determination for our people. And this is happening every single day. There's one too many children in care, but there's not one too many that we can't do something about it. And there is more cost to put children and young people into the family policing system than it is to keep children with families and communities. And so your your question, would I be a different person had I not been forcibly removed from my family? The reality is I was removed. And the reality is that puts so much on that young body and so much for that young person to work through. But what the system never expects us to do is survive, to tell our stories, to sit here like I'm here with you right now, to share it and hold that system to account. And so I would do anything to have a, one more minute with my, with my family. But the reality is that system also puts so much pressure on my mother and father. They're not here anymore. It doesn't just impact the child, it impacts a whole family and community and that child has to carry the weight of that violence in that body. And so as blackfellas in our community, we know that there is a disproportionate impact of the law that's targeting our people, that's targeting our children, our families and communities. So we will always be together to collectively stand together. But we need to be able to be self-determined in our own right and we need to be able to grow up with our families and communities. When we talk about human rights, we need to acknowledge it goes beyond the physical realm. There's spiritual rights, there's country rights, there's sovereign rights, and that's what we need to actually dig deep into what this family policing's taken away from us. Vanessa, you've recently completed your Bachelor of Laws and Bachelor of Social Work at UNSW, and, and I want to talk in a moment about your your honours thesis, which, mind you, you were awarded first-class honours for. But I think the, the question that comes before we talk about that thesis is you went and studied law and I find that interesting given your close experiences with policing and the law as a child and its impact on you and its impact on your family. Why did you go into university to study a law degree? So at the at the age of 18, I took it upon myself that I wanted to run from this state, this state system. The reality is it doesn't support you after 18, it doesn't support you before 18. And so I saved up all my money and I drove up to my country on Bundjalung country. Um, and it was really special for me. And then I remember applying to study social work and criminology at the time at um, the University of New South Wales. And I remember thinking to myself, whilst I'd started studying um, that degree, I remember thinking, but I want to do something that will have influence for my people for the better. Driven by, by rage, frustration and deep hurt, my heart set on the idea of I want to study law to understand this system better than the person who decided to remove me. I wanted to become an expert in this area so that I could try in some way, shape or form, work out what is it that they are removing our children and young people for? Why is it that this system is disproportionately impacting 
our people with policing, criminalisation and removing our children. And so for me, I, I sat down with um, a mentor friend and family now, um, her name's um, Melanie Schwartz and, and those who don't know um, her, uh, Deputy Dean of Law School at UNSW. And we had a coffee and, and we were yarning and she goes, so tell me, why do you want to study law? And I said, well, I was doing social work because I was always ever around so many social workers in my childhood. So that's why I think I went into it. But I actually want to do law because I know that I can do this. And I explained what it meant to me and what it meant to my family and community to do law. And she turned around and she said, well, I'm already surprised and wondering why you're not already doing it. Why haven't you started? Why didn't you enrol? And so it was this person who actually believed in me to undertake this degree and actually said, no, 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 I've got your back, not just for this moment, but throughout your whole degree. I'll support you. That actually got me to completing my law degree. And I think that's really important to acknowledge because as a child and young person who has been through that system and completely felt voiceless with no support to actually hit 18, feel empowered within myself, feel my strength come back. For me being able to study a law degree and say to that system, well, I understand your system and that system doesn't protect our people. And you'll find with a lot of blackfellas when we do these things, the goal is always to free our other people. So I'm so privileged to be in the position that I'm in right now where I've completed law and social work. I'm currently doing my PhD in human rights and abolition and I'm currently working towards building up programs and support for our children and young people so that we can really reimagine that better world. And so the next chapter for me is to share with people how do we reimagine that better world? What does it look like to see a, a better horizon for our children and young people? What does it mean to actually have our children come home? What does it look like? And how do we start divesting funds from the Department of Communities and Justice and letting our Labor government know that we need to do better, that we need to bring our children home, that they have a place, they have a sense of belonging, and they've always had that, and that these lands and waters, there is so much blood running through it that there needs to be accountability too many deaths in custody, too many children removed, no accountability, and we have a long way to go. And my goal, my next part of my journey is to make sure we hold those systems to account. And I'll be honest to those that are listening and to those that choose to tune into this, the only way we hold our systems of governance to account is we call it out and we collectively come together. We choose to be active in our political engagements. We choose to be active in our change. We choose to show up when community are holding protests. We build our numbers and we build our strength. So far we've focused on the implications for First Nations kids of being separated from their loved ones but often those kids are also separated from their country can you tell me what that means for a child's well-being as well the way our connections and who we are work as first nations people is it goes beyond the physical realm when it comes to our people and who we are our connection to country is everything protecting country is everything Country sits within us and we sit within country. And 
I'm a proud Bunjalung Wijibal Waiwa woman. My family come from the mid-north coast of New South Wales and I've spent a lot of my time growing up on Gadigal country, the city of resistance. And I remember when I was forcibly removed from my family and community and I remember being in these strangers' places, feeling scared, feeling worried, not knowing what was going to happen, not knowing if I'd still be there tomorrow, not knowing if I'd all I could pack was a bag and I'd be in the next place. Didn't know what was going to happen. But the one thing that I always knew for sure, that always stuck within my heart, within my soul, was I'm a Bunjalungwijibal Waiwa woman and no matter where I'm taken to, that my country, my place is always there. And so when we talk about liberation and we talk about spiritual connection and we talk about spiritual safety as First Nations people, there is power in our songlines, there is power in knowing within our hearts and our identity that we can always go back to country. And that's what I did when I was 18. I was so scared, I was so lost, but I was ready to run away from this system. And I ran to my country. I ran to my motherland. I ran to where my great-grandmother was a slave on her own country because that is the reality for First Nations people. And that's where I went to. And that's where I started to heal those cracks that that system could never heal. And for me, that wasn't just healing for myself. It was healing for my father, my nan, my pop, and for our community. Because coming home to country and place and bringing country wherever you go is what keeps us as us. It keeps us whole. We need to think about what does it mean when we take children away from country. Country always sits within our children's hearts and that's one bit of advice that I would give to all children, young people scared and afraid, is that you always have a place and you always have country. And I say this to so many nieces and nephews that I have and so many sisters and brothers, is that no matter where you are, your sovereign connection to country and who you are is always there. Our old people are always waiting for you to come home. They're always there. They're there in the trees, in the sky, in the land. Go back home. I want to ask as a final point about the referendum that will be coming at a date later this year. I don't want to ask you to tell others how to vote because I think everyone in this country is going through, or I hope everyone is, going through a period of listening Mm. and engaging critically and coming to their own position. But the important part of that process, particularly for non-Indigenous Australia, is the listening part. And so Mm. I'm hoping if you're willing, you might share some of your thoughts so that those who've tuned in today can hear your position and understand what you want them to know before casting that vote in the referendum this year? I think with the voice to parliament and the referendum that's coming that's coming up in or t- towards the end of the year and where people should position themselves is firstly what you just shared, a deep, a deep position and place of listening. Um, what I'm what I'm starting to see is non-Indigenous people particularly be challenged, so really be challenged on their ethics and process and really be challenged on, okay, we've gone so long being told it's not our place to say something, but now the full power lays in us 
to have a place to say something. And so the challenge lays in the non-Indigenous community now to think about, well, am I actively doing the work to listen? Is this the right approach forward? My advice when it comes to the referendum is, yes, be open to listening, but also just remember that whilst there's a yes campaign and there is a no campaign, there's also a very strong racist no campaign. And so that has implications on our people. That has ripple effects on our people when we talk about the voice to parliament. This is racism perpetrating at our highest level of politics in this nation and governments are not calling it out. No one's calling out the racist acts being perpetrated by the no racist campaign side. And that needs to be held to account. And so my push to non-Indigenous people who are thinking about this is to, one, call out the racism, check on your sisters and brothers, especially check on your Indigenous sisters and brothers and make sure that we are okay because this is having a ripple effect everywhere we go where we are asked about what's your take on the voice to parliament, what's your take on this. I'll tell you the reality of what's going on in most of our lives. We don't have the time or the privilege to think about a voice to parliament when we are trying to bring our children home from the very same system that have removed our voice. We are trying to decriminalise laws that are founded on racism that target our children and families. We have the Labor government in Queensland right now talking treaties, talking the voice to parliament, but is building some of the biggest prisons. That, that's where we're at right now. And so my push to people is maybe steer away from the referendum discourse and put that energy, that love, that that listening and that patience into on the groundwork because we are still here as grassroots people fighting for change. We don't have time to think about the referendum. We don't have time to sit in and listen to every single form of political discourse going on at that level because on the ground where the change actually happens is completely being silenced. And Uncle Gary Foley um, who's an, who's a, an Indigenous activist, um, incredible to all of our hearts, one of the first leaders in the, in the, in the Black Lives Matter movements and, and bringing in Indigenous history and activism here into this nation. He wrote an incredible article and he said, this is distracting what's actually happening on the ground. This is distracting all this funding that's going into this process, but we've just had over 10 Aboriginal legal services had to freeze their offices because they're not funded, because they're not supported. How can we talk about a voice to Indigenous people when we aren't practically providing the support to Indigenous people? And I understand that this is a step forward in the eyes of some, and I can really acknowledge the strength and the love that's gone into pushing the, the voice to Parliament and the referendum. I can acknowledge the works of Ani Pat, who was an extraordinary human being. I can acknowledge the works of friends in my community who were pushing forward for this referendum. But I also say, 
how can we have a voice to parliament when we don't even have a voice to the people? We're co-opting language and saying this means that Indigenous people will have a voice and seat at the table. We don't want a seat at the table anymore. We want to build the table, build the house, build our homes, and then maybe, maybe you can come sit at our table. Vanessa Turnbull-Roberts, thank you for being my guest on The Weekend Briefing. Thank you for having me. That's it for my conversation with Vanessa Turnbull-Roberts. She is currently writing her first book, Long Yarn Short, We Are Still Here. She says she's writing it for the children who didn't get to come home, those yet to come home, and the ones who never did. If my conversation with Vanessa has brought up some difficult feelings for you and you need to talk to someone, please don't hesitate to call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Or if you are a First Nations person, you can also call 13 Yarn, which is 13 92 76, also a 24-hour national crisis line for support for First Nations people. Don't go away. The Weekend List is coming up next. It's weekend list time. Helen Smith is here. And as ever, folks, we've been scouring the internet, the streaming services, the world to try and come up with things to recommend for you this weekend. Helen, what have you found? So this week, if you liked Succession, there is another TV show. It's a doco series. So it's a seven part doco series um, on SBS and it's called The Murdoch's Empire of Influence. So it is, yeah, a doco kind of series. It's, it's a bit more based on real life, I guess. Not like Succession, but you know, you could argue. But also it's based on this series by a bunch of New York Times journalists and it's really, really interesting. It gives you kind of like a, ooh, inside the life of the Murdochs. And yeah, if you were loved, obsessed with Succession and you want more, this is definitely for you. Murdoch is the most ruthless businessman in world history. Rupert's goal was never money. He's got his eyes on a much bigger game. Rupert Murdoch is the most powerful political force in America. Whoever succeeds him wields this gargantuan influence. There's no such thing as a sure bet in the succession battle. He's set it up into a trial by combat. That sounds so good. And I'm going to stay entirely on brand with my recommendation because, folks, on Monday night, assuming you are listening on the weekend this episode comes out, we are going to get to see the finale of Succession. For those who are Succession watchers, I don't even need to remind you, you know what's coming for you. And you've probably already put dates in your calendar, times, you'll be watching it the second it's available. For the rest of you, I come bearing hopeful news. I had a big go at my parents about three weeks ago that they were not watching Succession. And folks, they have caught up. They have caught up. Admittedly, they are semi-retired boomers. But in that time that they did have available, they have managed to binge through the four seasons to get up to date to be able to be watching along live now. They both apologised for not following the hype earlier. As a reminder, everyone, uh, Succession is, of course, an American TV series. It's like a black comedy kind of drama. It's made by Jesse Armstrong and it's all about the Roy family who are the owners of a global media and entertainment company called Waystar Roy Co. Very loosely based on perhaps another very uh, wealthy television entertainment conglomerate owning family. Uh, The story centres around the fact that 
Logan Roy, who is the father and sort of the leader, the patriarch of this family, um, is getting older and what is going to happen to the company when he inevitably passes. Uh, We're coming up to the finale. I'm so incredibly psyched. It's going to be so good. And for folks who didn't get on board earlier, there's still time. We'll still have you in our succession family. That is a very good point. There is always time to catch up. It's so good. Um, My second recommendation is Queer Eye Season 7 is out on Netflix. And this is my most favourite show. I just love it. It is the feel-good show. If you're like, oh, the world is just falling apart, you need Queer Eye in your life. This is just the happiest show. And yes, I'm in love with Jonathan as well. I just think... We all need more Jonathan in our lives. So Queer Eye, season seven, this is, yeah, it's just come out a few weeks ago. So go watch it if you you feel like you need a bit of it in your life. I honestly feel like watching Queer Eye is the same as having a really warm hug and like an affirmation that actually humanity, it's like an antidote to the TV news. And I am particularly happy that they always put out these short seasons so I get more of them more regularly. I really appreciate that. Uh, Speaking of an antidote to the realities of the world, folks, I'm recommending a tougher one to watch, but one that I think is really important. As many of you will know, ABC First Nations journalist Stan Grant is stepping back from his role in the media. He's taking an indefinite break from journalism because of the racism that he has experienced, particularly in his role as host of Q&A. On Uh, this Monday night's Q&A program on ABC, he gave a speech at the end of that program during which he explained why he is going to be stepping away from television for a period. And it is so well expressed and honest and reflective and searing. And I think it's so rare that we see First Nations people taking leading journalistic roles Uh, particularly on television, like Stan, and bringing their own lived experience to the work that they do as journalists. I'm not walking away for a while because of racism. We get that far too often. I'm not walking away because of social media hatred. I need a break from the media. I feel like I'm part of the problem. And I need to ask myself how or if we can do it better. I honestly, wherever you might think you sit on this question, really urge you to watch and listen to Stan's words on Q&A. You will find them on the ABC's website. If you also just put into Google, friends, Stan Grant Q&A, I think that will come up pretty quickly for you. There's YouTube, there is all the coverage in the news this week. Once again, I really implore you to listen. That's it for the weekend briefing for another week. Thank you so much for your company, everyone. If you liked the show, please make sure you download the listener app and follow the briefing there. That way you'll never miss an episode. Or of course, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back bright and early Monday morning where the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.